The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody, and welcome uh, to the Trinity Long Room Hub on a rather rainy Monday lunchtime. It's very good to have you with us. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Hub. Uh, and I'm very pleased this uh, lunchtime to introduce today's Faculty in Focus uh, conversation. If you're joining us for the first time, our Faculty in Focus series um, invites uh, a member of the arts humanities staff community uh, and puts them into conversation with a colleague who might have overlapping interests and it's particularly useful if they just published a book or finished uh, a research project. Today we are very fortunate to have not one but two philosophers at the top of their game and we're going to be hearing from Kenny Pierce, who's head of the Department of Philosophy in Trinity. Um, Kenny has just published with his co-author Graham Oppie from Monash University in Australia, uh, a book, Is There a God? A Debate. And this is from Routledge's uh, Little Debates About Big Questions series. And I think that that will help set the tone for today's conversation. Kenny's going to be talking to Paul O'Grady, who many of you will know uh, as professor in the Department of Philosophy at Trinity uh, and formerly head of the philosophy department. And Paul is author of several books um, on uh, uh, theology and philosophy, uh, recently Aquinas's Philosophy of Religion, um, published by Palgrave. Uh, and he's going to be talking to Kenny. Uh, they will be having, a, I suppose, a little exchange on a big question, is there a God? But also on related subjects, how did they get to be here with us in Trinity? Uh, and what does it mean to be a philosopher uh, in uh, our time? Why do we need to keep asking the big questions? Um, we'll be talking, uh, listening to them for about 40 minutes or so. Um, and then we're going to turn over to you for some questions. Uh, so please do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen to put your questions in as soon as you want to do that or your comments in as soon as you want to do that. And we'll come to those towards the end of the session. And as always, if you are tweeting, please do tweet uh, about the conversation. You can use uh, hashtag HubMatters and our handle is at TLRH. And all of this will be put into the chat for you. Um, but for now, let me hand over to our duo of philosophers and ask you, Paul, to uh, introduce the conversation with Kenny. And thanks very much, Eve. So I'm delighted to be hosting this conversation with Kenny. We're a relatively small department, so it's unusual enough that two of us work in the same areas. We both work in philosophy of religion. Um, and Kenny came to us as a specialist in Berkeley uh, and has written a book on language and the structure of Berkeley's world. So he's been focusing on early modern philosophy. But simultaneously, Kenny has been working away on philosophy of religion. He is just back from Rutgers, where he has been uh, doing a conference on this book. And, and in a way, the book is kind of a bit of a misnomer in that it's not a little debate. It's 300 pages and it's, it's intense. Um, I, I, I've read it. It's a thoroughly enjoyable book. So and the structure of it is great. So there's about um, 80 pages of Kenny outlining his view, 80 pages of Graham responding and outlining his view. And then two sets of responses where they're both engaging with each other's arguments uh, and going against each other. So I have a set of some questions and topics to discuss with Kenny on this. Um, and the first one really was that I wanted to ask Kenny a bit about the nature of the debate itself, because so, um, so Kenny is a theist and Graham is an atheist and they're arguing about the existence of God. But like philosophers, they disagree with each other, but they actually disagree about the structure of argument or the nature of argument or how to go about this, this book. So the way, Kenny, that you've presented your view is that you've, um, you, you're more traditional in a certain way. You've presented an argument for the existence of God and you've defended it and looked at different ways. And later on, we'll talk about what exactly that argument is and how it goes. But Graham, in his response to you, queries the purpose of making arguments in philosophy of religion itself. And he's advocating a slightly different way of running this debate that is presenting two different worldviews 
and then trying to evaluate whether one worldview is better or worse than the other worldview. Uh, and you set up different criteria and then argue with each other as to which one is the better or worse one. So I just maybe wanted to start off on that on that first issue about you disagree about the very kind of argument this thing is. So would you like to come in on that, Kenny, and say something about what you think about that issue? Yeah, yeah. so this was one of the most interesting things about the process of, of writing the book and having this discussion with Graham, because I went in thinking that I was adopting Graham's method. So Graham's been, been publishing in this area significantly longer than I have, and I've read a lot of his work over, over all the years I've been studying philosophy. And um, so I went in saying, yes, we both endorse this, uh, this worldview comparison method. But the way I was thinking about this is that we kind of um, use arguments to suggest that people should change their worldviews or to show that a worldview needs change, that it endorses certain premises that lead to a conclusion that, that maybe, uh, maybe a person doesn't, um, uh, doesn't already accept. And as we went back and forth on this, um, one of the things that emerged is that Graham has a different co concept of worldview than I do. So Graham is thinking of a worldview as an ideal picture of the, of the world, right? And I'm thinking of it as a picture actually held by some particular thinker. And this is part of what explains why Graham doesn't think these, these arguments are useful is because if you have a valid argument, that's right, so a valid argument by definition is an argument where the premises guarantee, logically guarantee the truth of the conclusion. And so if you accept the premises of a valid argument and deny the conclusion, you've got a contradiction. But an ideal worldview won't have any contradictions in it. So there won't be any arguments you can make within this ideal worldview that will go from premises it endorses to conclusions it doesn't. Whereas if you're talking about real human thinkers, that is a thing that actually happens. And it, it happens in weaker ways that I call tensions where there isn't quite a contradiction, but the, but the kind of there are elements in the worldview that are pulling both directions. And it, it also took a while to recognize that Graham doesn't recognize this category of tensions at all in worldviews. Um, and so he's thinking, well, we've got these ideal worldviews. We kind of check them for internal contradictions. If they have internal contradictions, we throw them out. And then we just compare their theoretical virtues once we've got them all kind of spelled out. Mm. And so it turns out, in his view, one of the like, hardest things is you have to go and say what every commitment of the worldview is about everything. And that is very much the structure of his opening statement. Mm. Um, and then once you've spelled that all out, you can do this comparison about theoretical virtues and whatever. Um, whereas I'm thinking much more in terms of views of the world actually held by people and philosophy as trying to help people revise their worldviews and make them better and arguments being a kind of key tool in how we go about doing that. Okay, Kenny, and I guess the, the worldview that Graham is articulating, he, he, he's calling it naturalism. So it's a view that's kind of more or less says that the, the sciences tell us what really exists. And then in that particular context, atheism is a byproduct of the viewpoint. So there's no such thing as gods or God or no and very common spooky stuff in his worldview. Right. Um, and you're kind of articulating your view, which is the what you call classical theism. And so that involves commitment to the existence that there is a non-spatiotemporal reality that is uh, as real or more real than the spatiotemporal world that exists. And so um, Graham's worldview is this naturalistic worldview, and your worldview is the kind of theistic worldview. So when, when you've got these two competing kind of views, other than just you know, kind of trading insults at each other, how do you how do you go about trying to assess which one is the correct one? Yeah, so um, a lot of these kind of methods of of worldview comparison are drawn from practices of theory comparison in the sciences because the sciences are kind of our our examples of of successful human inquiry. And so we're thinking that um, we want to accept worldviews that are simpler. Um, and 
that are uh, more coherent. So again, this thing with the tensions that Graham doesn't accept that concept. I think that coherence of worldviews comes in degrees. They, they kind of fit together neatly um, or they don't. Graham thinks it's kind of either they have contradictions or not. Um, but then we, we sort of assess them for uh, simplicity and explanatory power. So whether they can uh, explain all of the data that's agreed upon between the two uh, worldviews, whether one of them believes in more entities or more complicated entities or more kinds of entities, um, whether one requires a more complicated set of um, concepts, uh, more complicated logic or more complicated conceptual apparatus in order to state it. These are the sorts of comparisons that we make um, to, to kind of see which one is, is a, a more rational worldview for us to adopt. And it's important to note that this, this kind of thing, it, it doesn't amount to a, a proof, right? Neither, neither Graham nor I think that this is the kind of uh, the kind of question on which we should expect a, a proof. But we can try to show that kind of one way to go works better than the other mm -hmm. uh, in an intellectual or theoretical way that it's, it's more rational or that it does a better job of, of explaining the world. So, so one of the things that I really liked about the book was just the depth of engagement that you had with each other. You know, so you're really striving to make sense of each other's position and give it its best shot, but then pulling no punches in terms of the objections that are kind of leveled against it. So just on what you're saying there about comparing worldviews and the simplicity of one vis-a-vis -vis the other, um, just straight off, it might seem that the naturalist would have an advantage then because you're going to accept the scientific stuff as the naturalist does. But then as a theist, you're postulating more things beyond that. So mm -hmm. some realm of things that are non-spatio-temporal. So, so in what way might you then argue that, that your view is better or simpler than the naturalist? Yeah. So there are, there are two things to consider here. One is that it's very, very commonly the case in this kind of theory building activity that we have to trade off simplicity against explanatory comprehensiveness. And so I claim that, uh, that theism can explain something that naturalism can't, namely uh, the kind of overall structure of the complete sequence of causes and effects, the, the totality of the causal history of, of reality is something that, that theism can explain that the naturalism can't. But the second thing is that it's not necessarily a cost to simplicity if you were posit an, an additional level at which the things you're already committed to are explained and unified. So you might have you might have thought that um, this somebody might have thought, uh, well, we're already committed to all the chemical substances in the periodic table. Why should we go beyond that and posit uh, protons and neutrons and electrons, right? But actually, it turns out that that theory can now we have kind of fewer kinds of things at the most fundamental level. We can explain how all those chemical substances arise from those few things, and it has various other advantages for um, explaining all the phenomena that we observe. And so theism, I claim, provides that kind of deeper explanation of the world that we observe uh, and kind of uh, ties together and, and unifies uh, the world and gives an explanation of the totality, which is not explained by naturalism. Okay, and, and, and I guess, Kenny, as I read the book, it, it, it reminded me a lot of the strategy that Richard Swinburne uses in his approach. So he's mm -hmm. using, you know, kind of scientific rationality and appealing to the criteria that you use for theory comparison in terms of kind of making sense of which is a better theory than the other. And obviously simplicity is an important thing. But also Swinburne talks, I guess, a lot about fit with background knowledge. So it kind of fits with other things in the background. And I suppose one of the considerations that the naturalist would want to bring forward is the thought that the, the kind of reality or the kind of agent that a theist is postulating um, is radically unlike the kind of agents or the kind of things that, that we normally know. So say if you think that God uh, knows things, so has the omni property of knowing everything, um, the, the, we, we normally think of the things that know as biological-based organisms, the brains, and you know we can explain the thinking process through that. 
whereas the theist has to postulate a kind of a non-physical thing. Um, and that does seem to be hard to gel with our background knowledge and things. So is that uh, a particular weakness in the theist position or how do you go about responding to that? Yeah, I, I think that's a very complicated issue because there is a lot of complexity and a lot of different views among naturalists and among theists about how we should understand mind uh, in the human case, mm -hmm. right? And that's something that we go into a bit in the in the debate, but um, but it not it's not one of the kind of core issues that we get deep into. Mm -hmm. So if you do think that you can kind of fully explain what thought is in biological terms, then you do have this sort of um, uh, difficulty about what it means to, to talk about God as a mind, as a thinking being, mm. if God is wholly non-physical. And even if you do, even if you do believe that we need something um, non-physical to account for human thought, you might still worry that there are a lot of ways in which God is going to be unlike that. Uh, in my view, for instance, God is, is atemporal. God's thinking doesn't take place in time. And it would be very hard to understand uh, anything like our thinking being atemporal. We think in a, a sequence. We have a train of thoughts going through our head. And so it is true on, on the kind of view that I defend, uh, it's not a very anthropomorphic view, right? It's a God who's, who's quite different from a human being. And so we are positing something that uh, we can talk about with this kind of mentalistic language. We can talk about God having knowledge and we can talk about God having will and so forth. But it is a, uh, a non-standard uh, usage. Uh, and the traditional term for this in philosophical theology is analogy. Hmm. Um, and, and so there does arise some, some questions about the extent to which the application of analogy means increasing the complexity of the worldview. And, and I think it's fairly clear that Graham wants to minimize the use of analogy as much as possible, or he thinks the more analogy you have, the less simple your position is gonna be. Yeah, I think his view is that analogical concepts are totally new concepts that count in the, in the calculation mm -hmm. of, how many and how complicated concepts do you need to state your worldview? I think that seems to me like a mistake. So when um, in, in classical physics, it's part of the concept of a wave that it has to propagate in a medium. So the uh, you know water waves, you can't just have the wave without the water. Mm. And so when people first started thinking about electromagnetic waves or light as a wave, they thought there had to be an ether or something that it propagated in. Mm because that's just part of the concept of a wave. But the view they ended up arriving at was one where we might say uh, light or electromagnetic radiation more broadly is a wave analogically. That is, it doesn't fit, it's not really the same as a water wave because it, it doesn't propagate in a medium. It can be described by the same math and, and that's the main basis for using the same terminology. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think this shows um, that when you use these kind of analogical extensions like that, the thing you're doing is should be seen as less costly to simplicity than introducing something totally new, something completely different from anything we've thought of before. Okay, good, Kenny, thanks for that. So look, maybe if we, if we kind of shift more from the methodological stuff to the more substantive argument itself, so you, in your presentation, set out an argument. In fact, you set up four different arguments for the existence of God. So maybe indicating strengths and weaknesses of each one and positive and negative arguments. So do you want to just set out the story, the, the brief four-stage four outline of your Leibnizian argument? Sure. So the, the core idea of my, uh, of my argument from contingency, which is the, the main metaphysical argument that I'm raising based on, on Leibniz and other classical theistic thinkers is just that the question, why is there something rather than nothing is a, a good question that deserves an answer. Um, and that it can be answered by theism in a way that it can't be answered by naturalism. And in order to kind of um, 
play in order to kind of understand how that's going to work, we have to be a bit more precise about what we mean by the question. What is it that we're trying to explain? And on my presentation, what we're trying to explain is the total sequence of causes and effects in reality. So all of the, the instances of, of cause and effect, I call this history with a capital H, the total past, present, and future causal history of the universe. And we want to know why is that the way it is? So it doesn't, this argument doesn't depend on an assumption about there being a first cause or the universe having a beginning in time. If there is a beginning of the universe in time, then we can ask why is the universe like that? Why is it structured in this way that there's a first cause at the beginning and then things proceed from there? But if there's no beginning, we can equally ask why it's like that. Why have there always been causes and effects in this long uh, train going on? And so that's the thing we're trying to explain. And that thing cannot have a causal explanation because a, a cause, anything that's a cause is part of the sequence that we're trying to explain. And so we would exhibit a circularity there. We need some other non-causal type of explanation, something that's outside the sequence. Uh, and that's where this kind of my hypothesis comes in. And so this, the way I, the way I state my hypothesis is space-time and all of its contents exists because of the free and rational choice of a necessary being. And this idea that that sequence is, is chosen by a necessary being outside the sequence allows for an, an explanation that I claim uh, naturalism can't duplicate. Okay, Kenny. So if here, here are kind of three sort of sets of objections to the story that you've just told. And so the first one is that for, for a lot of the 20th century, um, a lot of different philosophers of different stripes have just rejected the question, why is there something rather than nothing? So you have, um, say, positivists saying that's a pseudo question. It seems to be making sense, but actually it's not really making sense or you have ordinary language philosophers, maybe Wittgensteinians or post-Wittgensteinians saying, look, th th this is, you can ask these questions and maybe they have a poetic resonance, but you can't really do any theoretical work in respect to them because they're part of this older way of doing philosophy, which is metaphysics. And of course, after Kant or after Wittgenstein, we just know that we don't do metaphysics anymore. Um, and, and I think a lot of philosophers particularly say philosophers who are in the so-called continental tradition uh, still really believe that or, or, or kind of think that this kind of debate is quaint and it may have had its time in the 18th century or the 13th, uh, but, but, but not in the 21st. So how do you go about responding to that kind of challenge Just saying this is an archaic debate? Yeah. Um... So that is the, you know, the, the death of metaphysics has been often predicted and it, and it seems to keep coming back, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think there are, I think there are good reasons why metaphysics one way or another keeps coming back. That is uh, questions about the nature of reality and our place in it that are somehow beyond the ordinary methods of science perhaps continuous with those methods, perhaps not, but, but nevertheless that aren't, aren't or are somehow not ordinary scientific questions. And I, to me, it seems just unavoidable. And I should note that Graham is not a rejecter of metaphysics, uh, although he is kind of minimalist in his, his metaphysical commitments, but he thinks we need to say something about, say, where ethics comes from, where the metaphysics of, of good and evil and uh, where beauty comes from and, and so forth in ways that are gonna not be you know, decided by science. Uh, and we also need to make sense of science. So um, my number one reading recommendation for uh, people who have ultra deflationary views of metaphysics or reject it entirely is a, a short but difficult book, The Metaphysics Within Physics by Tim Maudlin. Mm. So he's a, an, an atheist, a naturalist, Right, but what he's he's doing is interpreting modern physics, examining those theories closely, and arguing that these ultra deflationary metaphysical views or these anti metaphysical views can't actually make sense of what modern physics is saying. 
Uh, and so even just trying to interpret and make sense of science leads us into these, these deeper and deeper questions. Um, and part of what goes on in some of these, the, you know, the views that claim to put an end to metaphysics is they're trying to draw a line somewhere and saying, this is where the legitimate questions stop. Mm -hmm. After that, the positivists say it becomes meaningless um, or whatever, here's the good science and there's the bad metaphysics. And actually part of the problem is just that that line can't be drawn. So if we just continue and follow out our inquiry, and if we assume that the scientific questions make sense, we just kind of slide into metaphysics, whether we like it or not. Okay, so supposing I slide into metaphysics, but I slide into Graham's metaphysics. So he's yeah. naturalistic and he's minimalistic. And so Graham will say, okay, so why is there something rather than nothing? Well, there was a, there was a big bang. There was a singularity that just started everything off. And there's always going to be something left unexplained. So the theist can't explain God. So you're kind of pushing the explanation out there. So as a good naturalist, why, why not just start with the initial singularity? That is a brute fact. Uh, yeah. That's the, the, you know, and you, no spooky stuff then behind it to explain further. Right. So, so I should note first that uh, Graham actually is a, is a non-standard naturalist or atypical naturalist in that he doesn't want to admit brute facts. So he wants to say that everything contingent has an explanation according to him. So according to him, this question, why is there something rather than nothing is a perfectly good question. But the answer to it is that, um, well, the initial singularity or whatever, the, the basic, those basic physical facts, the boundary conditions of the physical theory is how the, the physicists put it. Those facts are necessary, just as necessary as two plus two equals four. And he thinks there are no explanations of necessary, that necessary truths don't need any explanation apart from their necessity. Now, yeah. I think he's wrong on two counts there. Mm. The first is, I think if you take what physics is telling us seriously, we can't say that those boundary conditions <clears throat> are necessary because the, the general theory of relativity allows for solutions to the equations that would have given us totally different boundary conditions. And so those are physically possible according to the theory. That's the first problem. He's not respecting science the way a naturalist should. The second problem is that there are absolutely are explanations of necessary truths. Um, and in fact, uh, I kind of, I give some examples in the, in the book of mathematicians explain things, right? Working mathematicians think that some proofs explain the theorem and other proofs don't. And, and so there are, uh, and so there are explanations of necessity. So I think that uh, that Graham's view goes awry in, in those two ways. So, so one of the, uh, a further bit in the book that I really liked is that you just get locked into these arguments in other areas of philosophy. So, so just debating with each other about the nature of necessary truths and whether necessary truths admit of anterior explanations or whether they're just the stopping place of explanation themselves. Um, and, and, and I think that's one of the marks of just really, really good philosophy where you've got the big game about God, but then it connects to all these much more techie discussions as for about modality or epistemology, et cetera. So going back to your argument, I said there were three things. So the first was, you know, maybe you can't do metaphysics. You say science needs us to get to do metaphysics. Then there was Graham's metaphysics. And you're saying, well, Graham's metaphysics isn't really responsive to, to science, perhaps. Um, so a third kind of objection coming to your thing is that a lot of fellow theists, so a lot of other theists, do think that causal argument is really relevant to the existence of God. Um, and I can think of two in particular. So say one would be Aquinas, uh, who has, a, has various causal arguments, but probably the core one is a causal argument about existence, that God is the causal source of existence or everything else. And the kind of existence that God has is such that it puts it outside the spatiotemporal realm. Uh, so it's and perhaps that fits with your story about metaphysical grounding. I don't know. But, but a different theist, someone like William Lane Craig, will appeal to science and will appeal to Big Bang cosmology and will, in fact, say, well, since the universe had a beginning, uh, this behoves us to come up with an explanation as to why it actually had a beginning. So he's unhappy to just stop with something like the, the Big Bang as a terminus of explanation that says there's a rational source on that. So how, how do you relate to those? So theists who use science or theists who use a different kind of metaphysical kind of causation to run a causal story? 
Yeah. So um, going, uh, we can kind of trace really far back, at least as far, you know, far into classical Islamic philosophy, at least in the, the 10th century, kind of two ways of thinking about how the universe might relate to God, right? And one way is captured by this kind of argument from contingency that would, um, that I would support, that sees the world as depending on God ontologically, and that thinks that we can make sense of um, the, of creation, of the universe being created by God, even if the world doesn't have a beginning in time, right? That theism isn't committed to that conceptually. Um, the, the other view, the, um, uh, William and Craig calls this the, the Kalam cosmological argument. This is after a particular tradition in, in classical Islamic thought um, that kind of sees God as that first cause kicking things off at the beginning. And part of what actually got me started on, on this whole um, project and direction is that uh, I think a lot of contemporary literature isn't necessarily keeping these two as, isn't necessarily recognizing how different these approaches are. Um, so somebody like Timothy O'Connor says that, you know, says that he's doing the argument from contingency, but then ends up introducing God as a first cause of the beginning of the universe, of, of its origination at the Big Bang, um, which I think those are two quite different approaches. Um, and so that's what got me started on this cosmological argument stuff is thinking that, you know, these classical theists who think that it doesn't have to have a beginning in time must be doing something different than a lot of the contemporary proponents of cosmological arguments. And it's for that reason that I, my own kind of view, um, not being a, a medieval, a scholar of medieval philosophy and my, my main expertise, but my own kind of view is, you know, it's pretty clear that pre-modern philosophers use the term cause or its cognates in other languages much more broadly than we use it today. And Aquinas, for instance, is systematically committed to the claim that when we speak about God, we're always speaking analogically. So he can't think that God is the same kind of cause as a billiard ball, right? When one billiard ball bumps into another. And he can't think of God, a lot of you know, contemporary neo-Thomists would say God is not a cause among causes, right? Um, and I think that's more or less the thing that I'm saying. I'm putting it in the language of analytic metaphysics in a different way than they do by saying, look, causation is this one thing, it's this thing that the sciences tell us about that happens between ordinary finite objects. And the universe's dependence on God is something else entirely than that. Uh, and the right way to think about it is this, uh, this grounding way. So I think it'd be you know, disagreeing with uh, William Lane Craig um, on that in kind of a substantive way. I think I'm endorsing a view that's pretty similar to Aquinas um, and also Ibn Sina, Maimonides, Leibniz, uh, but but putting it into contemporary language in a different way than some other people do. That 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 seems right to me, Kenny. At least as I read it, that seems seems so. When you were talking about the medieval Islamic approach, so there's Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd, um, but also there's Al Ghazali, who 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 famously is critical of this whole project. So he he wants to say. The, the incoherence of the philosophers. So, so, so it's kind of like that, that you guys talking about God sound a bit like physicists kind of doing stuff, but this has no genuine connection to spirituality, to religiosity, to the kind of sensibility that people normally associate with, with religion. Um, and I know that at a certain point in the debate with, with Graham, you, you move to this issue. So you start speaking about religious experience and being part of a religious community, et cetera. So how, how does that whole range of stuff, if you like the more existential thing, connect up with the techie arguments that you're battling it out with Graham on? Yeah, this is something that I just think is so important that uh, so much of the recent analytic philosophy of religion is um, assuming that there, there's this sort of collection of unstated assumptions about how and why the existence of God matters. And, and these assumptions just haven't been subjected to the kind of critical examination that they should be. 
uh, and often they haven't even been stated. And there's a sort of particular picture of what religion must be that I think is in the background here. And both the theists and the atheists are often kind of influenced by American evangelicalism. Even the Catholic philosophers often influenced by American evangelicalism in their picture of what religion must be. Uh, and when you do have that kind of view, then you're gonna be thinking maybe something more like uh, William Hasker, who if you're thinking that like the whole point of religion, it's about a personal relationship with God or something like that. Um, well, then it's really, really important that we think of God as the, the sort of being with whom that sort of relationship makes sense. And it can really push people toward a very anthropomorphic uh, conception of God. I don't think that it's um, that that's necessary for the existence of God to have religious significance. But I do think that it's just a that the question being raised there is of enormous importance. And so how I tend to think about it uh, and the, the case I try to make in the, in the book is that we, we have these sort of human beings reporting experiences of the divine or experiences of a transcendent reality. And this is kind of the basis of these competing religious movements. <laughs> Right, each of them claims that the that the community has experienced God in a certain way. Uh, Christians claim that the the people who knew Jesus in the flesh had the the sort of most direct or important or significant experience of God in the history of humanity. And then there is kind of this tradition built on it, and these other experiences around it, and and so on. And the the question becomes whether we can make sense of that. And this, I think, is where the metaphysics gets uh, comes to have relevance to religion, is that if you're in a naturalistic metaphysics, then you're going to say there just couldn't be a thing like that. There just couldn't be what those people claim to have experienced. And so we're going to start looking for explanations um, in terms of human psychology, cognitive science, something like that to explain why people would have those kinds of experiences given that there is no such being as God. And so, you know, and, and when we do have experiences that seem to be of something that we know can't possibly be so, uh, we do sometimes conclude that, that we're hallucinating or, or the victim of some kind of illusion. And so it's in order to avoid that kind of rejection of, of religion as a sort of delusion, that you need a, a worldview of metaphysics where the existence of a being like God makes sense. And so to my mind, this leads to a, a kind of dialogue between um, religious experience and tradition and community on the one hand and the theistic metaphysics on the other hand. Um, and I, I suggest that that might be kind of analogous to the way theory and experiment interact in the, in the sciences. And, and, and I know that there's a really interesting debate with, with Graham on this about, you know, whether, whether there's parity between normal perceptual experience and so-called religious experience or whether the special pleading on religion. But actually, I was thinking of coming from a different angle altogether uh, that, that would be antithetical to both you and Graham. And that is that I think a lot of contemporary theology is very much influenced by postmodernism, hermeneutics, post-Kantian continental philosophy. Um, and there's a very, to me, strong skeptical tendency in this towards the kind of truth claims that metaphysicians make, or uh, again, a kind of a thought that almost the debate between you and Graham is kind of quaint, uh, you know, it's like a Victorian debate. But um, so how, how do you respond? Because I suppose that kind of thinking or theorizing in that way, does have strong purchase in religious communities um, and, and indeed across the humanities in general. So given that you're operating in a very different model or a very different paradigm, how do you relate to that material or how do you respond to it? Yeah, so I think there are many different views in that family that require different responses. So, um, one family of views would be like 
the um, the kind of Schleiermacher and his progeny who are thinking that there are these sort of religious emotions that humans have and we're just sort of expressing them and figuring out how to to relate to them and enact them and and so forth. Um, that seems to me, um, on the one hand, that seems to me uh, in some ways a rather shallow conception of religion compared to what people think they're doing, uh, ordinary religious believers. But on the other hand, it may be in part a reaction against an overly rationalistic conception of religion that didn't have room for that uh, emotional relation to the, to the divine and to the religious community and so on. And so to, to that kind of view, I, I would say that if we're going to account for the sort of full complexity of what religion actually means to its adherents, um, at least in the, the kind of Abrahamic contexts, um, we have to make room for both of those things, the, the emotional and the practical on the, on the one hand and the, the theoretical, the cognitive belief on the other. Um, and, and that view would be, you know, kind of similar to some of these uh, positivist views that would be expressivist or emotivist mm -hmm. about this, this kind of religious talk. Um, when it comes to different kinds of relativism and skepticism, um, I just think that um, at, least, at least on the popular level, Kind of, uh, kind of outside the the academy or among uh, among undergraduate students, or so on. Often, the initial attraction of those kinds of relativistic or pluralistic views is that they seem very respectful, like they're they're saying that all of the religions are are getting things right and that they're they're equally valid. And and there's a way in which that's true, but there's also a way in which they're doing just the opposite because almost all of the major religions make claims of exclusivity. And they often claim that the things <clears throat> they disagree with each other about are among their most important claims. And so there's a way in which it's disrespecting what these religions think they're about by forcing a kind of reinterpretation that isn't recognized by many of their adherents. And so to that view, I say, actually for, for me, as a, as a Christian, I would be more respectful to a, a Muslim or, or a believer in Judaism or Hindu by engaging with their, their beliefs and practices and the reasons they can give for them and the reasons they have for thinking those are better than my beliefs and practices, um, rather than trying to say that, that, that we can somehow all be right at once. Um, instead, we should be be having a dialogue and taking those reasons seriously on one side and the other. Okay, great, Kenny. So th th there are questions flowing in here at the moment, and there's a a very nice question from uh, Jarlath Kaleen that kind of just uh, nicely encapsulates a, a kind of an issue about what what are we doing when we do philosophy of religion or what's the point of these arguments? So I'll just read the question. He said, thanks for the fascinating discussion. I'm often struck by the fact that despite what seems to be an extraordinary number of academic debates, especially over the last few years, uh, instances where participants or observers actually change their minds based on the arguments presented are few, relatively few in number. Can you say what you think of the purposes of the debates is and the place of personal experience in, in mind changing? So I guess the, the thought is, what's the role of these kind of debates and do they actually change people's minds? Sure. So um, it, was a, it was a foregone conclusion that uh, neither Graham nor I was gonna change our mind on whether God exists. Mm -hmm. Uh, and most readers probably won't change their minds on that fundamental question either. But I will say that in the amount of time that I've been doing philosophy, I have changed my mind on more questions than I can count. Um, and part of what goes on in, this, in these debates is I think making a kind of progress about, on questions about what are the best versions of, of theism and of naturalism. What other views should the, the theist hold or what kind of theist should they be and what other views should the naturalist hold and what kind of naturalist uh, should they be? What kind of moves do you have to make philosophically in order to, to kind of preserve your core commitments? You know, because this is what happens with people is they're, they have a, a core that they're very committed to and then they make revisions around the edges in order to preserve the core. And theism or atheism is often a core commitment like that for people, and they're often willing to revise a lot of their other beliefs if it's what they need to do to maintain that 
that core commitment. And so it's that other revision that often happens productively uh, in these debates. Um, now, certainly there are some people who, who change their minds. Um, and this happens especially to, uh, to young people when they first begin to think about these questions uh, and maybe aren't so, um, so deeply committed to, to one side. Uh, and that, uh, you know, hopefully some of our readers, uh, the debate is, is not designed to, to convince people of one side. That's why we've gone to so much trouble to present both sides fairly. But it's designed to, to help people think through the issues and think more carefully about them. Um, and so the, the hope is that, uh, that every careful reader might change their mind about something uh, along the way. Um, although the, the readers who, uh, who change their mind about whether there's a God will no doubt be in the minority. Mm. And, and, and I think sometimes when you, when you read some contemporary philosophers of religion who've written about this kind of stuff, so people like Bill Alston or uh, Norman Kretzmann, so they, they, they will talk about how the engagement with the material has materially impacted on their views and how they've changed their views and altered them. Or, or, or someone like Richard Swinburne, who has, has, has always been a theist, so his views haven't changed in that mind. But certainly his engagement with science has led him to refine and to and to to change his way of being religious in certain kinds of ways so that he said he yeah. he, he disliked a lot of uh, theology because it seemed thoroughly irrational to him uh, uh, and so he he began to develop his kind of significant kind of approach on that yeah okay. something i think if i could just say real quick something i think is really important here as well um, and this is this is one of the reasons why I bring in so much history, and I, I keep uh, referring to all these old dead philosophers, is is that you know a lot of people have a very specific idea about what theism must look like and what atheism must look like, mm -hmm. and I hope that when people start reasoning through these issues, they start to see how many different theistic worldviews there could be, and how many different non-theistic worldviews there could be. And, and all the ways in which you, all the kind of other choices you have to make as you develop your, your total view of the world. So that if, if kind of one piece of your worldview doesn't work out right, you have lots of choices about the, the kind of revision you could make to accommodate that. Yeah, and, and, and in a way, so your book with Graham is, is in some ways a lovely introduction to philosophy because it just branches into philosophy of mathematics whether you need to be reductionist in philosophy of mind or in philosophy of psychology, where does love fit in? Uh, you know, so so it just uh, shows how all these issues kind of uh, fit in with the philosophy of religion debate. Um, another question: this this kind of on um, coherence of theism kind of issues. So it says, would you say that God has a root property, perfection, from which God's other attributes follow? And um, what do you think of the perfect being theism approach to this debate? Yeah, um, so I'm not sure what I think about the metaphysics of properties. So that's that's a, a one question here is whether we think of that a property is actually a thing that like redness is a thing that's related to red objects. Mm. Um, and this goes into our kind of metaphysics of, of God and in what way we think God is a simple being. So does God have one property? Does God have several properties? Or should we kind of dispense with this property talk either for God specifically or for everything? Um, those are those are questions that I uh, I haven't I don't feel I've managed to get clear on. But in terms of whether uh, of how to define God, um, I I take a a pretty classical view. It, I, it comes out of Aquinas, for instance, that. Um, that we humans can't grasp what God is. Um, and so we can't give kind of a fundamental analysis that would, that would be the essence of God that everything follows from. And yet we have reason to believe that there is such an essence. Um, perhaps the essence is to be identified with, with God. Um, we have reason to believe that there, there is a divine essence and we have reason to believe based on the kind of explanatory work that, uh, that God needs to do in that cosmological argument, um, reason to believe that the, that the essence has certain features or certain entailments. Um, so, I, 
So I'm somewhat sympathetic to the, the perfect being theology approach, but I don't necessarily think um, that kind of perfection is some kind of definition of God that we can then derive all the attributes we want from. Okay, good. Two more questions, two really good questions that have come up. One person is saying, um, theist atheist debates are often characterized in terms of people trying to say their view is more probable than the other. Uh, and so how, how should you go about thinking about the probability series? Should you try to say your view is over 50% or can you give a numerical value to it? Or how does that kind of debate go? Yeah, so that's that's not an approach that we take in this book. I tend to think that it is not a terribly useful approach. And the reason is that the when you do these calculations and you've got a whole bunch of evidence to weigh and, and factors and so forth in what's known as the Bayesian framework, really small differences in the prior probabilities can change the outcome dramatically by the time you do all that multiplication. So in the Bayesian framework, you have to decide like prior to examining the evidence, what's the probability of this and what's the probability of that? What's the conditional probability of this given that? And, and those decisions that you make are you can basically go back and, and jury rig it to get the result that you want. I do think that human beings hold beliefs with varying degrees of confidence. And there are contexts in which it makes sense to use probability theory to model that um, in our theory. I just don't think that kind of sticking those precise numbers in um, contributes much to uh, to a concrete debate as opposed to a theory about how reasoning works or something. Okay, um, good, Kenny. Uh, questions coming in fast. Ken Silver has a really nice question. Uh, who the, about the burden of proof in the debate? So in a way, atheists often take theists to have the burden of proof. So because you're accepting the existence of God. Um, but the discussion so far makes it sound like you take atheists to have the burden of proof to explain certain kinds of facts in the world. So do you think burden of proof stuff is neutral or do you think one or the other side has more work to do in this debate? I think you, whenever you are trying to change someone's mind, you have the burden of proof. So the, the default state is to keep believing whatever you believed before. And if somebody thinks it should, should change, then it's up to them to, to show you that, that it should change. Uh, and so in this sense, we're because, because this is a debate, we're both trying to show that uh, readers who don't already agree with us should begin to agree with us, right? Each of us is trying to say. And so in, in that sense, I think that the, that the burden is equal. Okay. And then another question that's come in is, should we worship the God you propose and why? Good. That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, I, so yes, um, it's a little bit hard to say precisely what worship is. It's something of a puzzling concept. Um, I would tend to think of God as the uh, the ultimate source of goodness in the world, and uh, the as it were the, the ultimate exemplar or paradigm of goodness, and that I think is the core element that would make the worshipful attitude appropriate. Um, I also think that we can, though we don't really get into this in the debate. I think that we can kind of. Um, attribute certain actions in history, especially to God, not necessarily as violations of the laws of nature, but as somehow specially showing uh, God's plan or something like this. And so that's the, the kind of biblical paradigm is often of worshiping God for some particular acts that God has performed. Um, those aren't views that I, um, that I go very far into defending in this book. And the question of whether we can attribute this kind of exemplary goodness to God in light of the evils that we observe in the world, 
um, is, is, of course, one of the most difficult questions facing um, theists and religious believers. And it's a place where I think that we ought not to, as some analytic philosophers do, separate the, um, the purely intellectual question from the existential one. Mm. Um, I think this is a question about whether we can have faith in the goodness of God, uh, where that faith is a, a practical attitude of trust. So this, I would, I would end up needing to deal with this, at least in part, through that material about religious experience and the religious community, mm. uh, and how the community has this relationship of trust to God um, that, that leads us to hold these views about God's exemplary goodness, despite the evils in the world. Okay, so, so that connects up the, the, the kind of the metaphysical or theoretical debate with the existential religious debate. But how, how would you then deal with, say, a common, like, like Tolkien's famous one, that the, uh, the character of Yahweh in the Hebrew scriptures was the most appalling fictional character ever invented <laughs> you know, yeah. because of just all the bad stuff, the smiting and the, the, the wiping out of whole tribes? Yeah, I mean, you can find writers in the in the Christian tradition going back to the fourth and fifth centuries, and and uh, Jewish writers that far back, as well, who are thinking that um, we know from reason and also from other parts of the Bible that it is just impossible that that the surface reading of some of these texts is true, um, that God commanded a genocide, for instance. Um, we, we just know that that couldn't be based on what we know about God from elsewhere. And so we have to get a bit more creative in how we're taking these texts and how we're uh, engaging with them. Um, and that is a, a really, um, really difficult question that is that I perhaps should pass at least in part off to the theologians, hmm. but that I certainly shouldn't attempt to answer in three minutes. Good, good answer, Kenny. Um, another question. Um, uh, Peter says, I'm very interested in the relationship between faith and reason. Can a believer argue for the existence of God based entirely on personal experience and belief? So that is, can faith ever be reasonable? Uh, I would say, yes, there are rational people who believe on solely on the basis of the um, kind of religious experience and testimony of religious experience. I think the rationality of that kind of belief is fragile in the face of certain objections. So without the kind of broader metaphysical picture. And so it's when you face certain objections that you say, for instance, there's this sparse naturalistic picture that just depends on science and doesn't go beyond it. And we all know how great science is at explaining the world. Um, and that picture can even explain why you have these sorts of religious experiences through some of this cognitive science of religion research. And so you should just regard them as hallucinatory. And, and without kind of an alternative picture, a, a developed alternative to, to naturalism, I think that the, the rationality of that kind of belief becomes is undermined by those kinds of considerations. And so where this stuff gets needed is in responding to certain sorts of challenges. I think I'm gonna to have to come in at this point and I, I very much regret that because uh, this has certainly been a very challenging conversation but absolutely fascinating to listen to. And I think the, the quality of the questions that have come in is testament to that. Uh, and we really appreciate not only the elegance with which you've talked about the God question, but the way that you've demonstrated uh, what it means to conduct and resource an argument of this kind. Uh, so it's been an absolutely wonderful session. Thank you very much, Paul, and thank you very much. And congratulations again, Kenny. Uh, I hope you'll come back when the God question has been solved. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. Uh, if you would like to hear more from the Long Room Hub, join us at six o'clock. This evening, there's still time to register for Professor Martha Feynman from Emory University. She's an expert on feminist jurisprudence, and she's going to be talking about resistance and responsibility of vulnerability analysis. And that's in uh, conjunction with the new Center for Resistance Studies. So there's still time to register on the website for this evening at six o'clock. I hope to see some of you then uh, and the rest of you in the very near future. But for now, thanks to the Trinity Long Room Hub team, as always. And once again, a, a virtual round of applause to Kenny Pierce and Paul O'Grady. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. Mm -hmm.
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.